Welcome to the Water and Wastewater Webinar, brought to you by Selenis, providing solutions for you and your customer. In today's webinar, you will hear Chris Lights of the Water and Wastewater team discuss bioaugmentation and activated sludge. Okay, guys, we're going to go ahead and start our webinar. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming in. Uh, Chris is going to be giving um, his presentation uh, today on activated sludge and bioaugmentation 101. Uh, Chris has been working for us for uh, a very long time, but he has 25 years of experience in wastewater treatment. Uh, he has a, a historic career at Betts Laboratories, Atlantic, Richfield, uh, Allied Signal, uh, Rhone, Pollock, uh, and then ultimately Ashland Salinas. Um, where he has also worked as a research scientist, a technical service engineer, product manager, director of marketing and business manager. Uh, he currently holds a BA degree from Temple University and a master's degree from Villanova. Uh, Chris is an expert in colloid science, uh, application of coagulants and flocculants, and might I say he's probably uh, one of the most knowledgeable uh, people in that area. There's multiple people here on the staff that uh, share his expertise. Chris has an in-depth field of experience in troubleshooting and clarifiers, dissolved <coughs> air uh, flotation, watering. Uh, <coughs> he's also ventured out into the mining area where he's employed his expertise in liquid solid separation. Um, also developed many, many computer models uh, of activated sludge plants and well-versed in complex microbiology, hence uh, the topic of the day in activated sludge and bioaugmentation. With that, Chris, please start you, your session. All right. Thank you, Larry, for that great in introduction. All right. We're going to talk about activated sludge, and uh, this is the heart of the wastewater treatment plant. Uh, Pretty much everything else is a per periphery, like primary treatment and sludge dewatering. But the heart of what happens is in the activated sludge system. I'm going to show you a picture of the total system. We have wastewater coming into a primary treatment, which might be a dissolved air flotation unit or a clarifier. And uh, that sludge goes off to a holding tank. Uh, effluent, water, effluent water goes into an aeration basin which is full of bacteria. You have an aeration basin which is full of bacteria that is that is consuming the organics that are left over from the primary treatment. Now the next step is to remove the next step is to remove that bacteria, those bacteria in a secondary clarifier. The final effluent goes out either to the river or onto a muni for further treatment. The sludge, most of the sludge is pulled out of the bottom and most of it is recirculated back to the aerator to get up to get more food. Some of it is wasted to the tank where the primary and then the secondary are mixed in a sludge holding tank. Sometimes it's a digester. And then you have sludge dewatering, which might be a belt press or a centrifuge. You have sludge cake going out of the plant. And then you have your filtrate, pressate, or centrate 
going back to be retreated. So this is very typical uh, in a wastewater treatment system. So if we look at the details, you have your influent. This is called mixed liquor in this aer aeration basin. Mixed liquor is sent over to the secondary clarifier. And uh, you have your waste activated sludge coming out to dewatering, and you have your return activated sludge going back. Now, as far as modeling these, these uh, plants, one thing we have to remember is that the loading on a secondary clarifier is basically the influent flow, which is Q sub I, coming into the aerator. You also have your recycle flow coming around so that load on your secondary clarifier is actually the influent flow plus the recycle flow. So that, that's something to consider when you, when you look at, say, a, the loading on a secondary clarifier, you have to include the recycle. And then you have your effluent, you have your waste. Those are the three uh, major flows to do a hydraulic balance on the system. Now, you probably heard of BOD and COD, uh, biological oxygen demand and chemical oxygen demand. BOD is material that the wastewater bacteria can utilize as food. This is, this is stuff that is readily edible by the bacteria. They consume BOD and um, they, they use that as a source of carbon. BOD is measured by observing the total oxygen uptake rate uh, over a five-day period. That's how, that's how they measure it. Now, there's another test called chemical oxygen de demand that is a very quick test. This, this test uh, represents the total oxidizable material in the wastewater. It's very quick, runs in about two hours. And and COD is almost always greater than BOD. Now, here's, here's the good news. BOD takes five days. COD takes a couple hours. Um, but a lot of plants have a relatively or reasonably constant COD to BOD ratio. So if you have a plant that uh, measures COD routinely and measures BOD on that same sample, you can then build a database of the BOD and COD ratio. Normally, a typical value would be two. If I had 1,000 ppm of COD, that normally translates to like 500 ppm or so of BOD. Some plants are at three to one, some are at four to one, but two to one is a pretty reasonable number. So if most of the models are written on BOD. So if you look at a textbook for activated sludge, they're, they're all based on BOD. But nobody can wait five days to get uh, a, you know, the BOD measurement for control. So they use COD. You can run the COD and use that as a control as long as you have this, uh, this um, uh, history or, or, or database. Now, what's actually happening here in a biological oxidation? We have organic material, also known as BOD, plus oxygen generates carbon dioxide in water. Now, here, here's the kicker. For every 
pound or kilogram of BOD removed, you generate a half a unit of new cell mass, approximately. So uh, that, so if you had 500 P ppm of BOD, you're going to generate an, an additional cell mass based on that BOD loading. And you can calculate that. There's there's models that'll calculate that the uh, that uh, the process is mediated by enzymes on the surface of the bacteria take the organic material inside the cell and metabolize it. And while they're doing that, they're creating new cell mass. Now, to maintain a stable state, that new cell mass has to leave the system. And so to maintain steady state, generally the new cell mass is wasted out into the dewatering system. Now, what are the requirements inside the aerator? Uh, there, there's some pretty specific things that need to be maintained inside the aerator. And one, you have to have the presence of acclimated bacteria. In other words, the bacteria need to be acclimated for that particular stream so that their enzyme structure can take in the BOD type for that particular plant. Now, you, you need also sufficient dissolved oxygen. Um, some people say you only need one ppm. I, I, think, you, I think two ppm is more, is more like it. There's a wide number of opinions. Um, and anything above, say, three ppm of dissolved oxygen is probably a waste of energy because you have to put horsepower in to generate the dissolved oxygen in the stream. So it could be a waste of energy. So I, I would say 2 ppm of d dissolved oxygen is, is, the, is the right amount for most systems. Temperatures between 10 and 30 C. Uh, when the temperature gets too cold, all the biological reactions slow down. And if the temperature is above 30 C, the enzymes contort themselves into a different structure that makes it harder to digest the BOD. So temperatures between 10 and 30 C. If uh, I know of some paper mills that have um, that have very hot influence to their aerator, and they actually run it through a cooling tower of sorts to get it down under 30 C. Now the next thing is aeration basin pH really needs to be between six and eight. That's uh, that's not. Uh, they need to adjust the pH with some by some means to keep the the pH between those those limits. Now another important thing is ammonia and phosphate. In order for these bacteria to grow, they need to generate DNA, which is uh, and, which is, contains um, uh, ammonia and phosphate. The phosphate background is is on the is on DNA, so they need five ppm of ammonia and one ppm of phosphate for every hundred ppm of BOD. And then, of course, you need BOD, the biodegradable matter. So those are the those are the things that is actually needed to run an activated sludge plant. Now, 
I've often asked a question of uh, how do you monitor the biosystem? Well, the important things to measure would be the BOD and COD and the influent and effluent. You need to build a database, like I said be before. The next thing you need to measure is in the aerator, there's a thing called mixed liquor suspended solids. And this is the quantity of bacteria and other solids that are in that air aerator that's going to exhibit a load onto the secondary clarifier. The other concept is mixed liquor volatile suspended solids. Now that is the actual measure, that's more of a measure of the actual bacteria. MLSS is a measure of the um, bacteria plus the inerts, and this is more re related to the actual bacteria. Now I have a spreadsheet that I use to calculate that um, if, if you want to measure the MLSS and MLVSS, you have an aluminum pan, for example, uh, or, or, or sorry, you have a dried filter paper, and that might be, you know, about 1.1 grams. You filter 100 mLs, um, and you have a weight, and then, uh, then you take that weight, and that calculates the MLSS. Then you take that paper and put it in a, a Coors Crucible, and you, you, um, you fire it. And so those, those are the weights there. And this thing calculates, if I, end, uh, if I started with 200 mLs a sample, it, it's, a, it's a smaller amount. So this little calculator will will help you. And the other thing it does is it calculates the ratio of MLVSS to MLSS, which is um, normally should be at least 0.6, preferably 0.75. Okay. Anyway. Um, so here we have the, the calculations are drawn out here in case any of you guys want to play the home game. Here's, uh, here's how to calculate the MLSSS if you don't have the spreadsheet. So we'll do what I do and just use the spreadsheet. Okay, now we're up to a concept called the sludge volume index. Sludge volume index is something that is measures the intrinsic settleability of, of, of the biomass. This, this pretty much gives you how healthy is the biomass, how well is it going to settle, and do I have filaments or not. So uh, basically you take a thousand mLs of mixed liquor and put it in a cylinder and watch it settle over a 30-minute period. So if the and then you take that number and you divide that number by the MLSS. So here's here's the formula. You take your volume at 30 minutes divided by the MLSS times a thousand. And you like to see numbers in like the 150 to 250 range for SVI. Uh, in other words, this is saying what is the volume that one gram of mass takes up. 
So one gram of mixed liquor solids take up 250 mmLs of volume in that particular example. So here's a little procedure. Here's, here's the formula for it. And what it gives you is it tells you how healthy the biomass is, whether it's going to settle, and it, um, it can spot filaments. When you start to see SVIs in the 400, 500 ml uh, range, mLs per uh, gram range, you are in trouble. You're going to have some settling ish issues, and nine times out of ten, it's due to filaments. Okay. Here's a statement about dissolved oxygen. Uh, basically says we like to see the dissolved oxygen between one and three mill milligrams per liter. If you don't have enough DO, this can cause filaments because filaments are this uh, very elongated structure and they can take in DO, they have more surface area, and they take in DO and they more or less suffocate out the other beneficial microorganisms. Um, and like I said before, too much DO is a waste of energy and may actually cause flotation problems in a secondary clarifier. In the secondary clarifier, you want to see settling. And, and too much DO is sometimes detrimental to that. Now, here, here's a test that I highly recommend for people to, to learn how to do the specific oxygen uptake rate. So in this particular test, you obtain a sample of mixed liquor, you shake the bottle vigorously to saturate it with oxygen, and you normally can generate like eight or nine ppm of DO by vigorously shaking the bottle. You put in your DO probe, and then you're going to watch the DO. The DO is going to drop. And you make yourself a graph. Basically, you uh, this is a typical plot here. You're, you're measuring dissolved oxygen versus time. So for, for like the first 20 seconds or so, you're going to see kind of erratic re results. You're not going to get a nice clean uh, reading. But then eventually the electrode will settle in, and you'll start to see a nice linear drop in DO, and then what happens is it'll start to asymptote out as, as, as your DO gets less and less and less. This linear portion of this graph is the critical piece, and I have a piece of software. I have a, here's, here's a, the specific oxygen uptake rate test. So you put in your test volume, you only enter your data in green, you put in your test volume, say a thousand mLs, and I have my mLVSS, and you need to put that in, let's say it's 2250, put in 2250, and now I'm looking at this data, and you can say, okay, uh, I want to look at the graphics, and here's, here's a graph of that, of that DO profile. Now let's say I had a data point that was really whacked, and I had, okay, this, this is just a number that, let's put in seven here, like something happened to the electrode, and now I got that, that number, you can go, 
oh, that's going to throw off my, my whole graph. So what I can do for that, enter a zero here to throw that, that data point away. And then what that does, it, it resets the line and throws out that particular data point. But it leaves it on the bar to tell you that you threw it out for whatever reason. And you can put a note on there, threw it out, extraneous data point. But anyway, what this thing does is it calculates your dissolved oxygen uptake rate. It calculates your specific oxygen uptake rate, which is a measure of how healthy those bacteria are. Uh, if Let's say I had uh, everything here was, was all eight, for example. What if I had something that looked like that? What if I had a graph that looked like that? And then I look at my, my graph. That's a flat line, folks. Um, you probably got a problem. Uh, it says here that your dissolved ox oxygen uptake rate is zero, and your specific oxygen uptake rate is zero, which is, in other words, this is adjusted for your biological solids. So that's really a bad thing. You do not want to see that. Okay. Um, okay, so here, here's the calculation for you guys that want to do your own calculation. The specific oxygen uptake rate is the dissolved oxygen uptake rate, which is the slope of that line, divided by the MLVSS. So if that line is steeper and you have a smaller amount of MLVSS, that means those bugs are even more active. Now this will help you spot the onset of toxicity too. So if you are cruising around and you know that uh, you had you normally have a 45 uh, milligrams per liter per hour per gram and then you come in and they're having trouble and they're only getting 10 it's probably due to some type of toxic uh, shock that's that's coming into the system that's that's negatively impacting those bacteria so it's an easy test to run and I highly recommend everybody learn how to run it. So um, next concept for activated sludge is to know your food to mass ratio. Now I recommend a, a flow totalizer to get your daily flow rate and use a composite sample rather than a grab sample for your BOD. So you, you measure your flow and your BOD you have to know the effective volume of that aeration basin, which you can normally get from the engineering people. And you, for this test, for this calculation, you use the MLVSS, not the MLSS. So food to mass ratio, it would be the flow times the BOD. In other words, this is the food. Flow times BOD is the food. And the volume of the aerator times the MLVSS is the mass. So you have food to mass ratios. A, a good food to mass is like 0.3 to 0.5. If I see food to mass ratios of one, that means the bacteria are probably getting too much food. If I see food to mass ratios less than 0.1 or less than 0.2, I'm thinking they might not be getting enough food. And if the food to mass ratio goes low, it tends to favor filaments. 
for the same reason as uh, as the oxygen that the ml uh, the food to mass rate ratio at low food it favors the filaments because they have more surface area now the other concept you might hear about is sludge age now there's a lot of different ways to calculate the sludge age and I highly uh, recommend that you ask your customer how they calculate the sludge age and if they say they never heard of the sludge age well <laughs> then uh, then uh, you you can do it the way I think it should be done which is to count all the solids in the system in other words all the solids that are in the aerator all the solids that are in the secondary clarifier sludge blanket and throw in another 10 percent to for for all the solids that are in the pipes and pumps and tankage and and then you know how much they're wasting out of the system so basically it is the the sludge age is how much material is in the system in other words here's total weight in the aerator here's total weight in the clarifier here's total weight of solids in the piping so that sum divided by how much solids am I losing out the dewatering how many solids am I wasting plus how many solids go over the secondary clarifier weir so this is the solids lost this is the solids in the system and your sludge age uh, typical sludge ages are approximately 10 to 30 days so it's a good number to to track um, that will give you an indication of the age of the sludge that's in the system so if I look at food to mass ratio sludge age um, you know dissolved oxygen and, and do a microbiological examination which I'll show a little later you get a good idea of uh, the history of and how that plant is is uh, running and you can compare today's data point against past his, history which is really critical normally when I ask uh, somebody for data I like to see at least the last 30 days of data all, all this kind of debt data preferably three months worth of data now we talked a little bit about nutrient balance for every hundred parts of BOD that enter the system you need five parts of nitrogen as in in the form of ammonia or and you also need one kilogram of phosphorus as P in the form of orthophosphate so if your customer has polyphosphates they take a little bit longer to break down um, and if, uh, so if they have a real sh short aeration time sometimes they don't get the benefit of that P because it doesn't break down in in time so you want to measure orthophosphate and ammonia and make sure you have this ratio hundred to five to one now a lot of guys will say you know what I just uh, measure the ammonium phosphate at the end in the final effluent and and assume that uh, that I had enough if, if there's a small re residual um, kind of like 
I have a, a Chinese friend, and, and if I go to dinner with uh, at, at my Chinese friend's house, I'm not supposed to eat everything on my plate. I'm supposed to leave just a small portion on my plate. Uh, that's that's uh, to show that you've had enough, that it was very good. But the bacteria, the bacteria, you're assuming the bacteria have, have manners and they're going to leave a small re residual. I think this is a bad assumption. I would rather plan for my picnic by looking at what do I have coming in, how, how much ammonia and how much phosphate I have, and I plan for my picnic ahead of time, rather than looking at, well, how many burgers were left over from the last picnic, um, and, and that's how I'll plan for the next one. That, so I don't like looking at re residuals as much as I like looking at the forward uh, BODN, and I know how much ammonia and phosphate I need from that. Now we're up to some fun stuff. The microbiology, bacteria, protozoa, these are significant organisms that we want to track. Um, now we have heterotrophic bacteria. These are bacteria that require organic compounds. And the, these are the pre predominant species. We also have in that system autotrophic bacteria. Um, their, their presence usually depends on the sludge age, or sometimes called the mean cell re retention time. So you'll see sludge age and mean cell retention time used interchangeably. Um, and I, if, if it's over 10 days, you probably have significant amounts of these bacteria that convert ammonia to, um, to uh, nitrite and then nit nitrate. And then eventually they'll convert it all the way to nitrogen gas, which is sometimes a bad thing because then you get floating in your secondary clarifier. But we're going to talk about the, the, the microbiology. Now, to do a microscopic in examination, I recommend daily, at a minimum. Uh, I would really like to see once, once a shift, but not everybody is up on, on the, the microbiology, especially at the operator level. But we would work on training uh, the, the uh, people. Now, if there's a re if there's an upset, I like to see every two to four hours during upsets when, you, when you're doing uh, recovery of your activated sludge system or during periods where you're oxidizing the recycle line. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about why you would oxidize the recycle line a little later. But um, you have to remember that you cannot see the bacteria directly with a 500 power mic microscope. What you're looking at, you're observing, you're estimating the health of the bacteria by observing higher organisms that are dependent on those bacteria. So if I had all this data, if I had food to mass ratio, sludge age or mean cell re retention time, a sludge volume index number, a specific oxygen uptake rate, and the nutrient balance data. In other words, do I have the 100 to 5 to 1 ratio? I can pretty much say what's wrong with that system and, and then can uh, show a, 
an intelligence pro an intelligent process change. What do we have to do to fix that system? So here's here's the life form hierarchy. We have the low lives down here, which is the lowest of the low is the bacteria, which you cannot see. And then you you move up the chain to higher life forms, amoeboids, flagellates, free-swimming ciliates, stalk ciliates, rotifers, and nematodes. Now I'm going to show you pictures of each of these classes as we go along. And then there's another type of organism called filamentous, which are usually a problem. They're in a class by themselves. And these are the guys that cause the settling problem problems. Too many filaments can lead to poor settling in your secondary clarifier. But let's focus in on these life forms. The bacteria, the lowest life form, is just a little powerhouse. It, it's, it's small, you can't see it. It's coated with polysaccharide. These little green chains are, are anionic polysaccharides. And what this does is these bacteria are very, very tough to flocculate because they are surrounded by negative charges and they tend to repel one another. So these polysaccharides tend to stabilize the bacteria in water and these are the guys that are doing the work. The food comes into the cell membrane gets converted to CO2 and water and then uh, then they grow and then they have to be dewatered. But what we're looking at, this is the lowest life form here. The lowest life form higher than a bacteria is these amoeboids. Usually just a blob of protoplasm with no hairs or no little ways to propel themselves around the, the liquid. They, they just kind of exist. They encapsulate some food and they suck it in, but uh, basically they have no propulsion system and you'll see them uh, in the liquid. This is the lowest life form, but a little higher than a bacterium. Now the next one, you'll see the next higher life form has a means of pr propulsion. See, you have these little feet and you have these little hairs, you have uh, uh, I guess they, uh, this is how they can move through the liquid. Um, so this is a, uh, a, this is basically a higher life form than, than the amoeboid. Now the next one is a, examples of a flagellate called a euglena. And you see that this is the, this is the uh, structure of the this little guy, and he can propel himself through the liquid by this little, these little, um, uh, I guess they're whiskers or tails. So he has a means of pr propulsion and can move in the liquid. So he's he's even higher life form than than the last one. So we're we're going up the food chain here. This this one uh, propels itself actually through a little bit like a, like a jet. He can propel himself by squirting water out the back of this thing. And uh, so this, this is a flagellate. He has a little tail and uh, they, they can move through, through the liquid. Next one is a free swimming ciliate. This is an even higher life form. 
you see this guy's got little hairs and he can roll around and propel himself this this one has longer little hairs and they they propel themselves around the flock and you'll you'll see these guys are very mobile moving from flock to flock and um, you know uh, they they do a pretty good job if you see these you know your system is fairly healthy because these don't these are kind of sensitive creatures if you don't see any of these means that well you know you might you might have some kind of problem now these stalks like little flowers under the water i love these guys i love when i see stalk ciliates because i know the system is really healthy when i see stalk ciliates i know that the bod re removal is pretty good we're moving up the food chain uh, and when you see these, it means the biomass is relatively healthy. Now you go up the uh, higher life forms. These these are multicellular creatures. Now here we have the uh, uh, a type of rotifer. This guy can actually suck the protoplasm out of other bacteria and other types of of even the higher life forms. Um, these are these are pretty nasty creatures and you know it it's almost like there's a war going on down there that's a dog-eat-dog -dog world in the in the uh, world of uh, of uh, bacteria and uh, in and these higher life forms now here's here's another type of rotifer this one actually eats like a, a Venus flytrap it can take material in and it digests it in inside there and like I said, these are higher life forms. Um, they they uh, if you see these, you know you're you're on the older end of the sludge spectrum. Here's one that looks like it actually ate something. You see the the cells. That's probably some free swimming ciliates that this guy has eaten, and you see them inside there. Um, now here's a really the highest life form that you'll see is the is a nematode. These these nematodes are uh, very very large on a on a um, see if that's the size of a free swimming ciliate here. The nematode is fairly large compared to that. So if you see these, we're probably in the old part of the spectrum. Now these guys will fool you though because long after there's a shock there may be a shock these guys can last through the shock maybe a day or two so these guys will fool you as will some of these other higher life forms these higher rotifers because they can live longer after there's a shock so if you don't see any of these other life forms but you see some rotifers that's not necessarily a good thing you may have a you may have a shock problem and that's why the specific oxygen uptake rate test is a good test to run because then you'll see if your main bacteria got wiped out or not now if you see these they mean nothing this is a these are just algae that somehow got into the system by some means and and um, this really doesn't mean anything. So don't get fooled thinking that these are that these are some type of uh, higher life form because they're not. 
Now, what does it all mean? This graph kind of sums it all up. And if you look at this spot, this spot is where, where you are targeting. You want to be right in the middle. You want a nice food to mass and like around a 0 0.4, 0 0.5 sledge age of 15 days or so. Everything's really, really good. And you get good settling in this air area. This is the sweet spot. And if you look at the ratio of, of um, the various life forms, you have a few amoeboids, few flagellates, lots of free swimming ciliates, some stalk ciliates, and rotifers. This, when you see this, you know you're right in the middle. You're at a good food to mass, a good sludge age, and you get good settling. Now, what if you're out here and you say, oh, you know, I have, I have some amoeboids, flagellates, but I have way less free-swimming ciliates, less stalks, and nematodes, and rotifers. Out here, you have a high sludge age, low food to mass, and your sludge looks old and tired. When you look in your settlometer and you're doing your sludge volume index, you see lots of pin flock. And it, the sludge is relatively old. Uh, you may see that the uh, that the liquid looks kind of dark, and there's lots of pin flock in it. That's indicative of an old sludge. Now, on the young end, if I have lots of amoeboids and flagellates and some free swimmers, but nothing else, that could mean that you have a high food to mass ratio, low sludge age. And here, you're actually going to have high turbidity in your effluent. And you'll see that the, that the, uh, the settled material is high in tur turbidity, not pin flocks. Pin flocks are small flock, but relatively clear supernatant. This one is actual high turbidity, and, and that indicates young sludge. Now, what's the difference? Why would it matter? If you're treating with polymer and you're putting polymer in your secondary clarifier, I should mention, first of all, that a well-run activated sludge plant should not require polymer in the secondary clarifiers full-time. Now, I can't stress this enough that if plants want to put polymer in a secondary clarifier, please do it just on an intermittent basis. Um, if they have to use polymer 24-7, they, they have a deeper problem that they really need to address. Because when everything's nice and they're in the sweet spot, they have the right food to mass, the right sludge age, and the right mix of population of indicator organisms, they do not need polymer. They'll get good settling, good TSS or total suspension solids re removal the sludge will thicken up to a nice amount and uh, uh, everything is hunk is hunky dory but even well-run plants drift out of the optimum range on occasion so here's here's the bottom line the takeaway here in a young sludge condition where you have the high turbidity means the cationic demand is very high and you're probably going to need a a low to medium molecular weight, high charge cationic polyamine, right? 
So in this condition, products like Amerflock 485, which is an epidma, can, can do the job and clarify that, that high turbidity. Now in the other one, the old sludge condition, the cationic demand is a lot lower because it's old and you've eaten up all the anionic polysaccharide but the flocks are scattered. In this case, a high molecular weight, lower charge cat flocculant like Drew Flock 2425 would, would do the job. So uh, you have a flocculant in for an old sludge, you have a polyamine for a young sludge, and that's fairly typical. Now, I alluded to filaments before. Um, here's some pictures of filaments. Um, you can see they have an enormous surface area, and this is one of the reasons why they do not settle very well. They have uh, the high surface area allows them to sometimes outcompete the flock forming bacteria, uh, and uh, you'll see uh, that they can suck up the DO more efficiently, they can take in food more and more efficiently, and when, uh, when these things start to take over control of your basin, they starve out the good organisms and the good bacteria, and all you're left with is bad settling. So you have to watch out for these. Now, how, how do you fix them? Um, we have a, this is what I alluded to earlier about putting oxidant in the recycle line. Um, the same way that the filaments can take in more oxygen and more food is, that's the same method that we use to kill them. We put in oxidant and they're more efficient at taking in the oxidant, so they tend to die first before the good flock forming bacteria. Now, um, one thing about filaments, small amounts of filaments can help build your flock structure. Large amounts of filaments are nothing but a problem as, as far as settling is concerned. And uh, like, like I said, they get out of control very quickly. Now let me go to a worksheet. I, I have this worksheet, and here is the filament control pro program. Now if you look at this, one, one thing you need to run this would be your total aeration volume. I'm going to try, like, I'm going to try 3 million gallons of aeration volume with a uh, volatile solids of 4,000. And my bleach uh, got a little weak, so that's at 10%. And uh, let's see, I'm going to feed it for only 12 hours, and I have a recycle rate of 2,000 gallons a minute. Now, this thing here is says you want to start low. You do not want to uh, you do not want to overdo it with the chlorine or the bleach because you often kill good bacteria too. So you add this these oxidants, you're killing quite a bit of, of good bacteria also. So I'm going to start this one at six. And you'll see what, what happens here. You're this this is calculating your MLVSS and aeration. And it's calculating that you need 601 pounds of chlorine, or converted to sodium hypochlorite at uh, at 10% would be 
6,300 pounds of that material, or 713 gallons, fed at 59 gallons an hour for 12 hours. Now, if I wanted to do a continuous bio or continuous, I'd set this at 24 hours, and you can feed less per hour. So this this there's also metric units for you metric guys, uh, or or imperial units for us uh, uh, slaggards that uh, have not converted to metric. So. Um, Okay, so that's the uh, that's the way to kill the filaments. So here's the major causes of filamentous organisms: low dissolved oxygen, low or sometimes high food to mass ratio can cause filaments. You can get shocks or sporadic loading. You can have low phosphate or low micronutrient. Now, what do I mean by micro? Micronutrient. A micronutrient is like vitamins for bacteria. It's usually uh, low levels of zinc and cobalt and iron. We actually have a product uh, that uh, that is a vitamin for bugs, uh, Druzyme MN micronutrient. Um, the uh, it's it's put in at small amounts to help the bacteria grow. Now. Uh, High F to M, I wondered why low F to M can cause filaments, and also high F to M can cause fil filaments. And I think it's because high F to M can cause localized pockets of low dissolved oxygen that then leads to the filaments. So then that explains why high and low food to mass ratio favors the filaments. So here, for control of filaments, we use an oxygen in the recycle line. I've seen chlorine gas used, and it's dangerous. So this is the gas they used in World War I, uh, not recommended. You can use bleach. Bleach is a good with solid ones, probably the cheapest way to go. But I've also seen chlorine dioxide, peroxide, and permanganate. So uh, after you do your, your recycle, you definitely want to bio-augment during that, uh, you know, during and after that, that time because you are killing some good bacteria too. Now we're up to bio-augmentation. Bio-augmentation, I like it for startup of new systems. Um, some plants will start up using uh, municipal sludge from a municipal plant, even paper mills contact their local municipality and they bring, you know, a couple truckloads of uh, sludge over and put it in their aerator. I, I consider this as bad as trading needles with a drug addict to, to inherit all the filaments from some municipal plant and then expect those muni bugs that are basically eating up poop to turn and convert into eating components of paper mill effluent. I, I think it's a, a bad idea. I would rather see them use the bugs, bugs in a bucket or bio augmentation um, that uh, are being, that are added to control the filaments. And I, I like to see them used in uh, new startups. Now here's, Here's uh, some of the dry bacteria. 
We changed the name to Preystol a few years ago, so we have a whole product line of Preystol dried bacteria cultures, and um, these will enhance your COD, BOD, and total organic carbon re removal. They also enhance the system's resistance to toxic shock. Um, in high food demand systems, they will enhance settling in the secondary clarifier. And sometimes you can alleviate the need for adding polymer. So uh, that's the Preystol bacteria. Now, there's dried bacteria. It's basically a freeze-dried bacteria. It needs to be rehydrated. So you prepare a slurry of the bacteria, the 2 to 5% in tap water or unchlorinated secondary effluent, allow it to hydrate one to three hours, and then pour the whole thing, slug feed that bacterial slurry into the aeration basin near where the wastewater first contacts the mixed liquor. So that's, that's the way to do it. Now, there's a theory to how they do this. You, you start off with very high dosages of your bacterial culture to establish your population. Um, and then you taper that down over, say, a 14-day period. Now, here I've got another, another worksheet. Here is a worksheet that you can use that will calculate how your, your bug schedule. Now, here, 694 gallon a minute is 1 MGD. So I'm going to start at 15 pounds. See that here it says normally 12 to 20. I'm going to start at 15. I'm going to taper them for 10 days down to one pound per million gallon a day. And these bugs are $35 a pound. So here's, here's your augmentation schedule printed up. And you have your, it, it's, it's on this side too. So here's a chart. On the first day, you want to add 15 pounds. The second day, you want to add 13.6 pounds. And you work your way down over a 10-day period. And then this is your maintenance dosage, which is about one, one pound per million gallons a day. Now, let's say I wanted to start at 20. I'm going to taper it for 14 days, and I'm going to have a maintenance dosage of two. Well, this tells you here I want to start at 20 pounds and work my way in 14 days down to two pounds per million gallons. So, and this calculates the cost at $35 a pound, or if you're really aggressive, you want to to charge $40 a pound. Here's, a, here's your usage for the first month. This would be your first year's usage. And then your subsequent year's usage would be, uh, would be here. Uh, your first year usage is higher because you started off high and worked your way down. So that's how you use the, the, the calculator. And this gives you your chart. Uh, this just goes to show uh, that particular uh, that particular uh, schedule. Um, now here's here's an example of a full scale trial that was run. We have our primary clarifier, the splitter box. You had a north aerator and a south aerator. On this particular one, we bio augmented the north aerator, and then we monitored all the results on this north clarifier. We left this one untreated. 
And this, this system worked out well because the recycle was separate. It, it wasn't a mixed recycle. And you could definitely see that the results got better and better on the north results. But you didn't see any results until two times the sludge age. That's something that I have to stress to everybody that don't look for these bugs to work like immediately. They, the customer and you have to be a little bit patient. If you have a sludge age of 15 days, it may take 30 days to actually see uh, the full impact of the bio-augmentation program. Anyway, that's that's really it, and I'll be happy to, to address some uh, questions. Yeah, so there were two questions. Um, Owen Seaborn, Sanborn had a question about Amerflock 492, whether it would add nitrogen loading to the waste treatment operation if added to the process. No, because that material is pretty resistant to, to biodegradation. The Amerflock 492 is a polydadmac, and in the time that most of these aeration systems have, which is, uh, I don't know, you, you might have six to, six to 18 hours, you're not going to get significant amount of breakdown of the 492 in that time period. Second question, or I guess a statement Greg had uh, spoken about um, al algae um, and also the P04 as a major contributor to algae growth. Could you just speak to that in general? Oh, yes. Uh, that's one of the things that is becoming highly regulated is phosphate. Um, in the past, uh, nobody worried much about phosphate, but recently, um, especially in places like Florida, you have this red algae that's being formed from it basically comes from the phosphate. The, the algae love this stuff and they're growing on it. And um, the way to uh, fix the algae problem is to cut back on the phosphate. Now, there are technologies to remove phosphate. Uh, iron salts is one. Aluminum salts is another. Uh, you basically make a, and precipitate the phosphate out. And... Uh, and there's some trials going on right now where they're actually adding this into the primary um, side where they're taking out some of the phosphate from the zinc uh, uh, phosphate that's coming in through the paper okay. side. Well, if they have a bio plant, they don't want to remove all the phosphate because you're going to have to back add some in because uh, the bacteria need phosphate. But if they, if it's just a primary clarifier and then... Uh, that goes into a river, yeah, you're going to have to control the phosphate. A lot of, a lot of places now have a, a phosphate limit well under 1 ppm. And, and that's, that's hard to hit sometimes without a chemical treatment. So Owen had a, a third or a second uh, question, and it says, uh, can we test for uh, filament control in jar testing? I think that's a microscopy 
uh, type of test, but go ahead. Chris. Yeah, um, not, it's best to do that under the microscope. And and Owen, you will see these. Uh, you will see these bacteria. These while well, you will see these filaments. You can't miss a filament, even at even at forty power. You can see these filaments pretty good. Um, so you'll see it under the microscope. Now, if you're getting bad settling due to these filaments, that's when you do your jar tests. You, you know, sometimes um, in those cases where your clarifier is ready to burp over because it just won't settle, you can temporarily add some polymer to get you over the hump and get that stuff to settle a little bit. But with filaments, and the fact that you're recycling sludge around the loop, it goes back through the aerator, adding polymer for filaments is only a temporary, it's like a band-aid. It's enough to get you over the hump, maybe, to keep your TSS under control. But you, they really have to attack the source of those filaments. And if it's low DO, fix that. If it's a uh, high food to mass ratio, don't waste as much, all right? Don't waste as much sludge out of the system. Try to build up the mixed liquor to lower your food to mass ratio. So hey, it's a matter of knowing where, where you are, and, and, and then you come up with a strategy to control uh, the problem. But polymer is a Band-Aid. Uh, Nathan had talked about uh, use of a Lumen Ultra in activated sludge. Where do you see it fitting in? Uh, oh, I I think it's a great thing. It, it was it, I would have loved to present more. I think the next uh, the next seminar we do is going to be on the Lumen Ultra. It's actually a great tool. This uh, it it. It's used to determine the activity of the bacteria. They can, um, you look at the luminescence of these bacteria and the, um, uh, with, uh, with, with the Lumen Ultra unit. And it tells you directly the level of activity of, of, these, uh, of these bacteria. It, it's almost, it, it's probably better than the specific oxygen uptake rate test for, for determining the activity. But that's a whole seminar in itself. Owen has a third question, and he's asking about chlorination of jar tests to see if there's going to be an effect on um, the settling or the SVI. Mm. I, I have never tried that. I don't think it would work. I, I don't see that as, 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 as viable because it takes time. You know, when you add chlorine or bleach to a jar test, uh, it's, it's going to take a while for those filaments to, to – I don't think you're going to see it in the time that you do a jar test. But uh, you basically follow the – you basically follow the uh, the guidelines for adding the bleach, and uh, you know, be you start off conservatively so you don't kill everything in the system. But if you start at that four grams of chlorine per uh, per uh, thousand pounds of mixed liquor, I think that's a good number, and you're not going to wipe out everything. But you may have to double it. 
you may have to keep going up until you get control. But that's why you're measuring the SVI the whole time, the sludge volume in index. While you are while you are adding the bleach to the recycle line, you're constantly doing the microbio the microbiological survey and looking at the uh, sludge volume index the whole time. So here's a, here's a comment rather than uh, a question. Uh, you'd want to have some filamentous uh, still within uh, the process in order to get the flock structure. Uh, what are your thoughts on the categories of filaments? Uh, what would be a, an appropriate level of filaments, Chris? Well, you want to if if you see any filaments at all, they 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 should be buried within a flock structure. When you start to see filaments extend significantly past a flock structure, you know you're going to start to have trouble. So. Uh, so if you see a flock and you have the filaments and, and it's buried inside the flock, I think that's okay. But then if you get extension of those filaments way beyond the flock, that's when you get settling issues. One other question from Owen. He's talking about the methyl groups um, from the polydadmac. Could they interact with nitrogen in the wastewater systems to show an increase in the ammonium test? No, no, because that, that's a very stable molecule. Uh, the polydadmac is very, very stable, and it's very hard to uh, to de degrade that. The good news is it goes out in the sludge. So the polydadmac and epidma polymers and other polymers that you put in basically stay with the sludge and go out in the dewatering. They had a microscope question. Um, what are the powers that you would use to look at uh, the microorganisms within the, uh, the, the microscopy test? Well, I, I like 400 power. Uh, I use the, 40, the 40x uh, you know, uh, ob objective and, and then the 10x uh, magnifier. So. I, I like I can see everything I need to see at 400x. What would be the uh, I don't need that you, Go ahead. What, Chris, what, what's that? No, I mean a, a lot of uh, like in the in the Wilmington uh, research lab, they they fancy stains and they have uh, the the, uh, the the oil immersion lens and all that stuff. Really high tech stuff. Uh, but out in the field, I find that 400x is, is is okay. I can determine everything I need to see at 400x. But if you really want a high-tech uh, an analysis of your sludge, you can send in samples to uh, Beth Graves and and uh, Kathy Smith, and they can have a look at at your activated sludge system. When you when you're doing your microscopy, uh, what type of pattern do you want to use uh, when you're looking under the microscope in order to get a good feeling of what uh, the bacteria are doing? Is it a Z shape or T shape or just a random uh, look through the the microscope? Well, I look under, and normally there's a there's a stage. You move the stage back and forth. So I'll be I'll be writing down okay how many free swimming ciliates am I seeing I've just put a tick mark or how many stalk ciliates am I seeing and I go back and forth like uh, 
like a TV, you the, the way a TV screen, or at least the old TV screens used to work. It was like a kind of a Z pattern, and it worked its way down the screen. So I go back and forth over the slide area, and I basically write down, and then I tally them up. Okay, I saw six stock ciliates, I saw ten free swimming ciliates, blah, 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 and then I look on that chart, and I say, okay, I'm right in the sweet spot, or oops, I have way too many filaments, and I don't see any higher life forms and my specific oxygen uptake rate is horrible, I've got problems. Okay, well, look, Chris, this is, uh, we're about 10 minutes over the time, so we want to uh, thank everybody for their yeah, patience. Thank you. There was a little bit of technical difficulty at the beginning, but it was a very good uh, presentation, Chris. Thanks for all of that. That was a absolutely graduate-level course uh, for uh for the bioaugmentation of the secondary biological treatments. So thank you very much, Chris. And, and thank you all for your attention. Thanks, thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, guys. If you have any other questions, just please feel free to call Chris. Thank you. Thank you for attending the Water and Wastewater webinar. You can find more information on the IWT Technical Training Resources site within SharePoint as well as a video recap of this podcast.